Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined once again by Peter Martin, who will be answering your Bible questions for the next hour. If you would like to join us to not only send us your questions, but to hear the answers, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to where we are live streaming every single weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. The page will be ccftucson.online.church, and not only at the right-hand side of the screen will you have access to our chat room where you can, of course, leave your questions, but at the bottom of the screen we'll have our email address spelled out, if you're joining us on Reach Radio, that you can take advantage of at any time. It is questions, plural, questions with an S, F-O-R-Hope at gmail.com, and again, that will be available for you both during and after the broadcast. We're looking forward to engaging with you through those venues, and uh, noting as well on Facebook, our website is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, since, of course, we don't control when or why we are taken down from those platforms. If you don't see us live streaming and you aren't given explanations or notifications, like yesterday, regarding technical malfunctions, feel free to join us on our website. They can't ban us on our own platform yet. So with that all being said, and noting the kind of questions we'll be answering for the next hour, note sincere Bible questions are the rules. Sincerity means that you want to hear the answer, the Bible, meaning the substance of the answer is found in the Bible, not beyond it, and of course that the question is asked in the form of a question. If you have concerns about maybe religions hostile to Christianity, those are welcome too, but make sure that the substance is, of course, for the topic we're setting for the broadcast, and we'll be happy to address it. And noting as well, we want to make sure that God speaks more than we do, and starting our topic off today with apologetics, we definitely want to be prayered up. So, Peter, want to start us off in a word of prayer, see where the Lord takes us? Yep. Uh, Father, we love you so much, and we're thankful for the work that you're doing in our lives as well as across the world. We want to spend this time focusing on your word and your truth, allow me and Sean to say things and speak in a way that honors who you are and what you've told us and revealed to us about yourself. I pray for all those who are listening, that they would be built up in their understanding of who you are, that they would be drawn closer to you, and uh, be more prepared to defend what they believe about you to others. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, and in your name, amen. That is true. Now, to start us off on a, uh, I guess, format for the broadcast that we've been missing for some time, the concern about mental health, it's not exactly as much an epidemic as it's made out to be, but it is a concern on a lot of people's minds, ironically, and the most common of which, they would say the number one killer in some circles even, is depression. Now, there was a study that was released last week and made more accessible to the public recently that uh, gives us an opportunity to maybe not only include some clarification on a Christian perspective concerning this topic, but uh, also seeing them slowly but surely catch up with us. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Me and Sean were talking about this before the show started. Uh, this study doesn't actually change anything that me and him believed. It just kind of affirms what we already 
knew to be true. So what this study did is what's called an umbrella study. An umbrella study is one in which they don't actually perform any new experiments, but they just compile all the existing data that is in circulation and they draw conclusions. So uh, this was done in the University College of London by various scientists that looked at all preceding decades of research regarding the biological connection to depression. Now, in the article, it says that about 85 to 90 percent of the public believe that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance, specifically a lack of serotonin within the brain or a deficiency of serotonin within the brain. Because of that, the majority of antidepressants are what are called SSRIs. These are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's kind of a mouthful. Yeah, but so <laughs> in plain English, depression is when your brain doesn't make enough happy juice. The antidepressants are supposed to level that out. That's right. Exactly. So what they looked at is they were just kind of asking a question that nobody in the psychiatric community was asking for the last couple of days. Do we actually have evidence to believe that depression is solely caused by some sort of a chemical imbalance within the brain? When they looked at all the existing data, their conclusion was a resounding no. Uh, they, they made it a little bit more clear than that. Let me read from the scientist who actually performed all these this research. Her name was Joanna Moncrief. Uh, she's a professor of psychiatry at UCL. That's the university, uh, university College in London. She says, it is always difficult to prove a negative, but I think we can safely say that after a vast, vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by lower levels or reduced activity of serotonin. The popularity of the quote-unquote chemical imbalance theory of depression has coincided with a huge increase in the use of antidepressants. Prescriptions for antidepressants have risen dramatically since the 1990s, and then they go off to list some statistics of how much it's growing. Now, uh, I'm not going to bore you guys by going through the entire article. You guys can go through the articles as you want. Uh, you basically just have to type in uh, the scientific connection between serotonin levels and depression and a myriad of articles will come up because many, many different reputable scientific resources are commenting on this experiment. None of them are debunking their research, which is really uh, interesting. But they are kind of drawing various different conclusions from what this study is saying. Now, what this is not saying, and me and Sean want to be very careful when we communicate this, this is not saying that what is going on biologically with you in no way affects whether or not you have depression. So for instance, my wife had postpartum depression after she had um, our, our first daughter, Fira. That was obviously something happening in her body. Her hormone levels were going crazy and awry, and it affected her mood very specifically and very erratically. This is also true for people who might be, you know, they mentioned inside of this article that various foods contain serotonin. So some people can eat foods that can affect their mood as well. If you're living off of diet of nachos and soda, you're probably going to be a pretty sad and depressed individual. Vitamin D has also been attributed to a lack of, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, an increase in depression, which is why some of the most depressed places on earth happen to be places that don't get a lot of sunlight. Greenland has more depression than any other country on earth. And Washington, the state, has some of the worst depression rates in all of the United States. What do those places have in common? 
not a lot of sunshine, right? It kind of brings people down. Beyond that, they even have something called seasonal affective disorder when you get into winter months and there's just less sunlight. So things like that can obviously affect your mood. We are not saying that biology has nothing to do with your depression, whether you have it or not. What we are saying is that serotonin certainly doesn't seem to be a cause of it, right? There are other biological causes, but serotonin doesn't seem to be something that actually dictates whether or not you're going to have depression. What this article confirms is something that we have said for, for a long, long time now on the show as well as off the show. Depression is a multifaceted, nuanced discussion. It is not something that can be reduced down to one singular cause. And there's going to be many different ways to look at it and many different factors that you're going to have to take into account. There's also a big difference, and we have to be careful when we talk about this. There's a big difference between what we call grief and depression. Grief is the experience that somebody has in which they're going to have all of the surrounding symptoms of depression, but it's in regards to or in reaction to some sort of a tragedy. So if someone's going through a largely stressful or grievous time, right? They just lose a loved one or something like that. Marriage falls apart, health falls apart, kind of like a Jobian kind of a circumstance. You can expect to experience grief, right? Which again, has all the symptoms of depression, but it goes away. It's in reaction to something bad that happened to you. And as you process this grief, as you process this loss, you will eventually feel better. People who have depression, as it's been currently called, are people that their circumstances are not actually dictating their depression, meaning that their circumstances are going very well, uh, that they're doing, in all accounts, very successful, very prosperous, nothing really is attacking them or anything like that, and yet they are still depressed. That's something that we need to look at. That's a, that's, it gets even more complicated. Before we move into this conversation with a little bit more veracity, I guess. Uh, anything you'd like to add or point out in this conversation, Sean? No, just make sure that those caveats are clear. When we're talking about these things, we're not saying that there is no biological component nor to these studies, but the specific twist on it, the way they're addressing it medically, shows no association between what the symptom is, a lack of serotonin, and depression, because you see that the two things aren't one and the same. Absolutely. And of course, that the lack of these in any circumstance aren't entirely based on a genetic or a or just a genetic disorder is what they're trying to treat it can be circumstantial it can be dietary it can be other things absolutely so this really does come and this is why we're talking about this on apologetic day this does come from a materialist worldview so materialist for those of you guys who aren't up on this a materialist is someone who does not believe in anything that cannot be defined by the five senses so it has to be something in the material universe uh, they don't believe in spirit. They don't believe in consciousness, really, to a large extent. They don't believe in free will. So because of that, they have to kind of reduce everything down that's wrong with us into really simplistic, reductionistic kind of ways. So if someone's struggling with grief or sorrow from a materialist perspective, there can't be any spiritual component to it. They also don't believe in something called original sin or the fact that this world is very hostile to humanity because of the fall, right? They don't believe in these things. So they have to come up with some sort of an explanation as to why human beings are going through these really tragic things. Some materialists go so far as to deny even the idea of, as I said, consciousness, because consciousness is kind of an immaterial facet of human existence. So they reduce everything down to neurology, right? Chemistry within the brain, essentially. So if you're going through depression, 
that is because there's some sort of a chemical imbalance and we can tweak that, right? We can pump you full of more serotonin and therefore your depression goes away. Now, Christians can make an equal and opposite mistake, though. And instead of being harshly materialist, we could be harshly spiritualist. Now, what a spiritualist means is that they deny the fact that the physical has any say in what's going on inside of your life. So for a Christian who's a harsh spiritualist, if they saw someone going through depression, they would say, ah, well, you must have a spiritual problem. Obviously, maybe you're demon-possessed, uh, maybe you're demonically oppressed, that's the language that we hear more often today, maybe you're demonically oppressed, or maybe you have some sort of a falling out between you and the Almighty. You know, are you praying enough? Are you reading your Bible enough? Are you attending church service? Are you uh, doing these good Christian things? Maybe the Holy Spirit is trying to get your attention by causing this type of uh, uncomfortability and depression, right? That's a hyper-spiritualist. What me and Sean believe, and what the Bible teaches very uh, clearly, is that there is a combination. We are both spirit and flesh. When God creates Adam in the garden, it says that he forms the body, that's the flesh, and then he breathes his spirit into Adam, and he becomes a living soul, right? So it is the marriage, the uh, combination of spirit and flesh that gives life and the spark of humanity to mankind. Jesus, who is spirit, God is spirit, John chapter 4, becomes flesh in the incarnation, and therefore you have a further marriage of flesh and spirit. So we cannot deny the spiritual aspect of why depression might be occurring in your life, but we also cannot deny the materialistic effects. So I could talk a little bit from my backstory. I went through a huge depressionary period from the, starting when I was 13 and really carrying on until uh, about now, and that was caused by brain damage, right? So I fell off a mountain and I hit my head really hard on a tree, uh, so hard that it actually cracked my spine. So, you know, like sprained my spine. So that was an instance in which I got a TBI, I got a traumatic brain injury. It drastically altered my personality and it created a large amounts of depression within me that's lasted even this long. I've gotten a lot better, but it's still something that I struggle with, and I've talked about that on the show. Uh, but you as well, Sean, you have a story in this, in this realm as well. Yeah, in regards to, uh, I guess, mental struggles, I won't go into too many details, but I was formally diagnosed with several, and uh, interestingly enough, developed others as a result of the medication that was used to treat the former. But when we're talking about this issue for the sake of discussing this, understand that we're trying to make sure that we have a balanced approach towards these things. If everything that goes wrong is attributed only to the demonic, well, then we've got some scriptural problems with that interpretation, because at the time, and this is generally the case that mental disorders manifest, uh, around 15, 16 years old is when the hallucinations became more potent and affecting my behavior. The <laughs> that time that I had dedicated myself to the Lord was five years before that. So obviously I wasn't mature in my relationship with God, but it wasn't as if the Holy Spirit wasn't within me. I had taken him up on his promise. So you either have to reinterpret scripture or demonize me, but you can't associate this with a demon. If on the other hand, people were going to note and say, well, the medication uh, made things worse, so that shows that the demon was the actual cause, but the problem is now that a more serious approach to a relationship with God has begun, and basically every single step they would note that has uh, 
been associated with a demon. I'll try and get my thoughts and questions straight. I'm monitoring other comment sections while this is going on. But the, the point being made is there's a problem with this sort of approach towards my struggle in that when people look at my biological charts, my uh, brain scans and the chemical levels and so forth, there's a tendency, a pattern for me to produce too much or too little in very overcompensating forms as well as the structure of my brain at birth causes me to basically uh, that REM sleep, REM, rapid eye movement, while I'm awake and conscious, and that can be superficial or it can be dangerous depending on the environment. The medication are supposed to lower all forms of that, but the brain is a complicated tool and just, again, ripping something out or limiting the power entirely on a computer would, of course, cause other issues even if it was resolving an infection. The same is true for me. If we make this approach in copy and paste, it's only biological. Well, it didn't help me spiritual approaches towards God and social circumstances, counseling and making sure I'm accountable in times where I'm struggling more than others, did more than the medication ever did. In fact, it's created more solutions than the medication caused problems. That just is economic. But if on the other hand they say it's spiritual, no, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not perfect, I'm not sinless, but if I say that the moment that I sin I fall back into insanity, that's simply not true, nor rational, nor biblical. But if on the other hand as well you say, well, there has to be some other aspect to it, and I would go, well, there is a biological one, but there's also a spiritual solution. This isn't copy and paste answer problem solution as it seems, and I'd put myself, just like you and your uh, experiences and injuries and other people as well, just consider it there, like Paul the Apostle, thorn in the flesh, where they say, look, my power... Jesus speaking, is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, we all the more boast in our weakness so that Christ's power may be manifest in us. My sanity is nothing apart from the grace of God. Your stability is nothing apart from the grace of God. All of our well-being is nothing apart from the grace of God because handed fully over to our flesh, and there'd be more going on than just mental disorders. You can mm -hmm. have a sane person who's incredibly evil. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a very good point, and it is one of the uh, foundations for the book that I wrote, Rooted in Sin, Rescued by Love, where a lot of people have unfortunately pathologized the human experience. Pathology, by the way, is just a, uh, you could just put it, a bad or diseased way of thinking. So people who pathologize the world and all of its ills would say, like, when they look at evil people, they have to say, there must be some sort of a diagnosable psychological disorder. And I hear this more and more throughout the church nowadays where people uh, will look at someone committing really heinous and evil actions and they'll say, man, I hope that person gets well. Well, y you know, maybe they do have some diagnosable disorders, but statistics really played out. People with diagnosable mental disorders are far more likely to, in to actually endure abuse as opposed to perpetrate it. So there's this really weird thing, and Hollywood is pretty responsible for it, I think, <laughs> that suggests that people who have mental disorders are more likely to be much more violent and cruel and things like that, and therefore all violence and cruelty and evil comes down to psychological disorders. That's just not 
true. Um, we have a sin nature. That sin nature is responsible for us moving into areas where we are volitionally and intentionally committing actions that we know to be wrong. Mental disorders can increase those things, right? So if I, for instance, have a low level of empathy and I'm more on the sociopath tendencies, that means it's harder for me to relate to other people and therefore it might be easier for me to cause them harm without feeling any guilt or shame. However, I still have to make the volitional action to hurt somebody. <laughs> I can't say like, well, well, it was my sociopathy, right? It was this, it was tendency that caused me to hurt people. No, it just made it easier to do it. And that that is why, again, there are many people walking around right now, and you never know it, that have these diagnosable mental disorders and they never hurt anybody uh, because it doesn't cause you to sin. It could be used as a magnifying glass in certain sin areas, but it isn't the cause, right? And we have yeah. to be very careful with that. And, and again, speaking from experience, they're more prone to hurt them themselves right. than other people. Absolutely. The highest, uh, I guess nowadays, second su highest suicide rate is among paranoid schizophrenics. Hi. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that, that communication, when people talk on that level, it can really freak out people who are on that spectrum and be like, oh my gosh, like I better take myself out before I hurt somebody else, which is just not true, right? It's not. And it's also doubly not helpful because when you bring this stuff up, once again, speaking from experience, it's not encouraging. <laughs> that's clear enough. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're just encouraging people to look at things as uh, nuanced as possible. This is a cool quote from the article that uh, me and Sean read today. It says, a growing number of scientists and professional bodies are recognizing the chemical imbalance framing as an oversimplification, kind of like what me and Sean are saying. Um, there is also evidence that believing that low mood is caused by a chemical imbalance leads people to have a pessimistic outlook on the likelihood of recovery and the possibility of managing moods outside of medical help. This is important because most people will meet criteria for anxiety or depression at some point in their lives. The scientists also found evidence from a large meta-analysis that people who used antidepressants had lower levels of serotonin within their blood. In other words, as you are taking this medication, it can alter your brain, ironically, it can alter your brain chemistry and make your brain less likely to be able to naturally produce some of these chemicals which are important for the functioning of your brain. It will drop them to a really unhealthy level. They concluded that some evidence was consistent with the possibility that long-term antidepressant use reduces serotonin concentrations. The researchers say this may imply that the increase in serotonin that some antidepressants produce in the short term could lead to compensatory changes in the brain that produce the opposite effect in the long term. So remember, as Sean's saying, when you take these medications, we're not wholesale throwing them out, but we are saying you got to be careful because every single time you take one of these pills, it is having various effects. Some of them might be healing and some, I mean, helping, and some of them might be harmful to you. Side effects may include. <laughs> and you're going to have to weigh out in your relationship with your family and your relationship with your uh, therapist. Hopefully you're going to see a counselor. What are the benefits and what are the side effects and do they really weigh one another out right so my wife is a good example when she was having postpartum they recommended she go on an antidepressant just to kind of weather the storm because postpartum usually doesn't last more than a year so she started taking this antidepressant and her eyesight started going away and so she was like okay i'm feeling marginally better but I'm starting to go blind. So I'm, I'm going to weigh those out and say, I would rather see and feel depressed than not see and feel great, right? Slightly better. Slightly better. That's right. So it didn't, it didn't even take it away. It just made it slightly better. That's why, again, if you're going to start looking at your mental health, 
my encouragement to you is to start at the simplest level. So start first, as we've been talking about, in your spiritual life. Uh, Viktor Frankl, I was quoting him last week, wrote a very fantastic book that I actually read last week. <laughs> it was called Man's Search for Meaning, and it was his experiences in a concentration camp as well as his development of his own form of therapy that he called logotherapy, which means that man inherently wants to know a meaning and that's what drives him. So he points out that the suicide rate in the concentration camp was about the same as Vienna as a whole, right? So that's very surprising to most people because you would think that people would be killing themselves in droves considering the kind of life that they were leading and the fact that at any point they could be executed in the gas chambers, but the opposite was true. So obfuscation from society, abuse, uh, rhetoric that centered around their demonization, no one was subjected to more of that than the Jewish people in not Germany, yeah. yet for some reason their suicide rate is in no way comparable to the people who have experienced comparably zero trauma today. Absolutely, absolutely. So you got to realize that there's something else going on, and he warns in the 50s when he wrote the book, he warns that he was seeing a rise in the existential philosophy which preaches that there is no inherent value to man, that we have to kind of discover our own meaning in our own lives, but there is no meaning given to us. We don't have inherent value and our creation, and we don't have inherent purpose in what we were formed to be. He believed that this would cause a breakdown in institutions like marriage as well as roles, and that would start to deteriorate society as a whole and increase depression and suicidality within the society as a whole. Seems like he was right, right? So when you, when you start, when I say start in a spiritual realm, my point to you is that even though you may be a Christian and you believe in God, how much does that truth impact you on a daily basis? Do you, do you really believe that you are formed in the image of God and that image that you bear of God Almighty gives you inherent value and worth? Do you really believe and know that Jesus Christ died for you, that he loves you and has a relationship with you? How much is that truth affecting the way that you think about yourself, the way you think about others, the way you think about your society? Do you believe that God has placed you on this earth for some sort of a purpose, that you have a meaning to your life? Uh, are you finding and discovering what that purpose is more and more in the way that you relate to people? Uh, are you disconnected from others and spending so much time on social media that you're not spending time with people, talking to them, having conversations with them, participating in life together with others? How are you doing in your career? How are you doing in your vision for what your future is going to look like? Uh, if you're young and you're single, do you have plans on maybe pursuing some sort of a relationship outside of yourself? Or if you are single right now and you don't have any romantic plans, are you investing in your local community? Are you taking the, your time and your resources that would normally be spent in a romantic relationship and putting them into a relationship with the people around you in your community? Are you investing in your church community? Are you spending time with people outside of just normal church hours that go to your church and hanging out with them, right? What are you doing with your life? Uh, I would also, again, point to diet. How are you eating? You know, are you are you binging fatty foods, bad for your foods? When you wake up in the morning, what kind of a breakfast do you have? Do you get exercise? Do you go outside, right? All of these things are just really minor tweaks that you can make to your life that could have a very impressive difference. It can make a very impressive difference within your day-to-day -day life. And the final thing that I mentioned, there's many other things that I could, we could talk about today, but do you know that your thoughts are fightable? 
This is something that this belief system takes away from. So the materialistic belief system, because it's inherent in your neurology, people in our society don't even think that you can fight your thoughts, that some of the thoughts that you have are not in congruence with society, with reality, and they need to be fought. They need to be dissuaded from your conscience and attacked with the power of the spirit. This is what we see in Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, you have a man who is very clearly depressed, right? Everything about Psalm 42 is mired in depression. And what does he say over and over again? Why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. This is a man who was at the end of his rope, didn't know what to do, didn't even know why he was waking up in the morning. It says his tears were his food day and night, meaning he was just spending all night and day crying and weeping over his life circumstances. He was disconnected from friends and family, and yet he's talking to his soul. He's saying, I know I think these things. I know I'm at the end of my rope, but I know it's not true. I will hope in God again. I will have a brighter tomorrow. I know it because God is with me. He is for me. And maybe my external circumstances won't work themselves out. But no matter what, God is a light in the darkness. And no matter how dark my circumstances get, God is enough, right? And I will rely on him. I will hope in him. And I will have life in him, right? That That's the kind of fighting that we're talking about that most people don't engage in. Any any last words or thoughts? No, just make sure that all the points are clarified. When we're talking about these issues, our position when it comes to any mental disorder is that there is hope, there is an answer, there is a solution, there is a reason to fight in Jesus Christ, that what he suffered and is willing to suffer with you is in fact a legitimate answer that has been tried and true by people from every perspective. Peter in injuries and circumstance, myself in biology and disposition, even uh, Pastor Scott Richards in circumstances when he was going through his divorce the and the church stabbing him in the back over an issue that wasn't his fault note, mm-hmm. uh, was a very depressing time where they officially prescribed, or uh, what's the word I'm looking for, diagnosed him (laughs) with clinical depression, and were willing to uh, diagnose, or uh, prescribe him, that was the word I was confusing, with antidepressants, but the reality is that it's addressing the wrong issue. If there's a problem with the heart and the head, then don't focus on the stomach and the blood. If, on the other hand, you're given an opportunity to deal with these things, and they've been carefully and prayerfully thought through, understand that is a possible solution, but it is not the solution. We still wouldn't uh, demonize those any more than the reverse stat should also be saying, you Christians just pray away your problems when there's actual medicine here. No, the medicine's actually not helping, and -hmm. you need to make sure that that is acknowledged as well. Yeah. So let us know if that's clear to everyone listening, and if you have follow-up questions on that topic, let us know. Uh, you already had a brief one, how to witness to someone with mental disorders, the same way you would with someone who doesn't. If they're struggling, then obviously make sure they're out of the struggle before you involve Jesus in the conversation, because it's not going to make much sense. But if, on the other hand, they're a human, <laughs> and a human with an injury of the body is as much a human with an injury of the mind. Make mm-hmm. sure that you talk to them like people, not like this special class that can only speak a certain language <laughs> if you pander to their disorder. Uh, that applies to others as well. Um, anything to note on that? Yeah, no, I, uh, I think that, again, with this ideology, some people shuffle to the corner of those with mental disorders. They think they're, they're like another class of citizen or something. Like, you need to talk to a psychologist. I don't know what to say to you. Uh, no, they're people, right? They're people like just you and me. The difference is, is that their minds interpret reality in a way that you and I don't, 
right? So it doesn't mean they're disconnected from reality. It's just the way they respond to reality is very different than the way that someone with a, a healthy mind would function in re- reaction to it. And it's not 24-7. There are times right. where you struggle more than others, but just like your moods, your episodes, they're oftentimes called, mm-hmm. can wane and wax. And in the same way, even if you have an ongoing struggle, unless you're locked up somewhere, you pick up coping mechanisms over time and focus on decent conversation. I, I still speak English and I still <laughs> comprehend it. It's not going to mean much to me if I'm having an episode, but I do, in fact, understand what you're saying, Yari, and can mm. interact with you that way. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I going on this Israel kick, so I, I read Man's Search for Meaning last week, and then last month I read Exodus by Leon Uris, which is a fantastic book. I'd never read it before. Have you? Have you? No. It's really, really good. I, I highly recommend it. I think you'd really like it. It's actually the, it's historical fiction about the founding of Israel. So it goes all the way back to the 1800s and the Russian programs, and it goes into the founding of the state of Israel. It's really excellently written. Oh. But um, when he goes through it, and this is, so like I said, it's historical fiction. So the characters are fictional, but the events and the circumstances are all very, very real. And what he talks about in the book is that you have these kids who grew up in concentration camps, essentially, right? Their formative years were spent behind barbed wire. They saw their families die, and they ended up going to Israel, and they're all essentially psychopaths, right? They have no human empathy or anything like that. The second that they started just being around other human beings and working with them and developing relationships and community with them, it began to heal them at an exponential rate. So what they found, and this shocked people after the whole concentration camp was over and these Jews were getting out of it in this horrific circumstances, how the West treated these people is they treated them like these broken, fragile individuals. And they're just like, well, we need to kind of lock you away. You need to kind of decompress. We're going to have you just talk to therapists. You don't really have any way to re-enter society. Those people either never recovered or the recovery was massively halted because of that. Um, and then the people who never recovered were never able to find a place in society because some people don't recover, meaning that they don't ever get what we would classify as normal brain function, right, uh, or healthy brain function. It stays in that kind of pathological way. But what they found out is the people who went to Israel immediately had to kind of fight for their lives against the Arabs and they had to like farm these places and they just had these communities and they started to heal rapidly. So unfortunately, one of the things that, one of the disservices we've done to people with mental illness in the United States is we have kind of locked them out of our communities and made them feel like they can only talk to therapists. And that's just untrue. It's not real. And it's very important for all of us to challenge ourselves into if we have friends or family members with these kind of mental disorders to challenge ourselves to spend time with them and just hang out with them, right? That that human interaction and connection is going to do more for them than you could ever realize. All right. So... Let us know if that helps, Yari. Uh, here's a not not a, the question per se. I just love the username, Sir Aldrich Aldrich the Brave, hmm. uh, wants to know how can believers go to heaven when they die? Nobody has eternal life yet, according to Daniel. Then he notes parenthetically, Paul, Matthew, and John too, that believers won't have eternal life until Christ's second coming. And he cites Daniel 12 and verse 2 to justify that. Well, um, since you mentioned Paul, Matthew, and John 2, let's 
note some uh, definitions given by Paul, Matthew, and John concerning eternal life. This is Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, so in contrast to being absent from the Lord, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So notice this equivocation of, okay, if I, or this association basically with body and Lord. If I'm present, me, in my body, I'm not with the Lord. But if I'm absent from my body, my physical death, which is what Paul was speaking to the Corinthians about, him either being absent, which is beneficial for me, but me being present is helpful for you. I would rather be helpful to you than to me, because you matter more than me. But here's the point that he makes. I would rather be with the Lord, mm-hmm. absent from my body. No mention of a final judgment or the resurrection, which we'll get to Daniel 12:2 here in a moment. In Matthew Chapter 19, verses 16 through 21, he gives his account of the rich man, and or not the rich man and Lazarus, the rich young ruler, who comes out to him basically swinging, where he uses the word, how may I inherit eternal life? Mm. So the conversation's about eternal life, and Jesus goes on to note his personal relationship with God by mentioning the latter half of the law, the Ten Commandments specifically, the Decagogue, as they're sometimes referred to. And he says, I've kept these commandments from my youth. And he says, oh, well, then all you have to do is wait till the resurrection in Daniel 12 and verse 2. No, he says, sell what you have, give to the poor, you'll have reward in heaven, then come, follow me. Now, he doesn't go on to say anything about the future. He talks about his present reality of being with Jesus, of following Jesus, as if that somehow answers his question of inheriting eternal life. Hmm. Since you mentioned John, here's John 2. In John 17 and verse 3, Jesus speaking at the Garden of Gethsemane literally defines eternal life as, this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He, note, he doesn't go on in the prayer to mention the resurrection or the final judgment. His prayers are for himself and what he's immediately about to go through, as well as his followers and what they are about to go through. But there's no mention or reference to Daniel. Now, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 does mention those awaking to eternal life, as opposed to those who will awake to everlasting contempt. But Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, not only has a verse before it, but three chapters before it, as far as the whole conversation. So we need to ask ourselves a question, is this doctrine, is this history, is this poetry, or is this prophecy? And if prophecy, note, we can conclude truth statements from those passages, but where prophecy generally finds its most sense is in understanding and referencing references as they come and as they go. Either explanations are about to be given or they will be or they have been in the few, in the previous scriptures. Daniel, interestingly enough, is put in this bizarre middle place where in Daniel chapter 12, interestingly enough, he's asking for clarification. In verse 8 of the same chapter, it says, "Although I heard, I did not understand." Going from the emphasis on the Messiah, 
all the way to Michael the Prince standing up for his people and the end of these things happening in three and a half years. He says, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And verse 9 reads, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified and made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. I hope this is the same for you, Sir Eldrick the Brave. And from that time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days, three and a half years. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. The significance of that? No idea. We'll wait like Daniel is because he's told to do exactly that. Verse 13, but you go your way till the end for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. So the point of emphasis in this passage is A, speaking to Daniel about something he was never intended to understand. Mm -hmm. We can understand aspects of the prophecy. For example, Daniel chapters 10 through 11 give us a lot of interesting insights into the uh, events surrounding Hanukkah and the Maccabees. We can also note Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek successor to Ptolemy, one of the generals of Alexander, Alexander the Great and his association with the Antichrist, but we don't understand everything. We don't understand a lot of things, in fact. Most of these things, and we can go into the rise of Rome and Cleopatra and other things that have become clearer with time, but not all of this has been made plain. Most of this will be clarified at the time of the end. If we're going to take one passage, compartmentalize the first third of it and say, okay, so eternal life only applies to those who will be taking part in the resurrection, the judgment that all Jews were expecting going before and after the time of Daniel. Then I think we're going off too little information. But if on the other hand I jump to the passages you yourself cited, or at least the sources, and each of those individuals all define eternal life not as the resurrection, but as knowing Jesus, being with Jesus. That starts to make more sense to me, because Daniel did not know Messiah yet. He was looking forward to him, that's how we know that we'll see him in heaven, but he wouldn't see Messiah until many days <laughs> into the future. Mm. On the other hand, though, and we can talk about the state of those who physically died in the Old Covenant and how they were awaiting their Redeemer but weren't in a state of torment. We can talk about that at a separate time, but Sir Aldrich the Brave, I'm going to say it as many times as I can because I love it, Paul, Matthew, and John all define eternal life, as you yourself said, as being with Jesus, and we define it as well, too, and I hope you do. But if we're going to take the first third of Daniel 12, 2, and then form a doctrine around it, that's incomplete information. Is there anything you'd want to say more to that? Yeah, just kind of sum it up and uh, put it in a really neat package. I would just say, like, what we all agree with, right, what, what you're commenting on and what we're saying is that there will be a resurrection after Jesus returns, right? There will be a general resurrection, which all the faithful will rise in glory. This is what Daniel talks about, very beautiful. What was debated was what happens during that interim period. So if I die today, will my consciousness be able to experience God before my body is raised again? And there are many Christians throughout the ages and Jews who believed in something called soul sleep, right? They really believe that, no, when your body dies, your consciousness goes to sleep, and God wakes it up again at the resurrection. Uh, this is what Jehovah's Witness believe, very unfortunately. famously, unfortunately. Now, what Paul says, and he seems to be in 2 Corinthians 5, the passage that Sean quoted, 
he seems to be going right at this type of theology, right? The idea of when you die, you go bye-bye. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. When you, when you die, does your consciousness go to sleep as well? I mean, that reference. Or, yeah. <laughs> uh, does your consciousness go to sleep or not? And Paul says, no, to be absent from the body, right? So clearly your consciousness is detached from the body. It's absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. So your consciousness will experience God during that interim period, and then you will also experience God when you are raised again at the end, at the end of the age. So, yeah, hope that helps. All right. Um, here's a question from Isaiah who wants to know, who are the 24 elders? Uh, he suggests they are the 12 disciples and the 12 sons of Jacob. It's one theory, but we're not told in the text, so we'll kind of just leave it open as people with high honor in the presence of God. Obviously, it fits. <laughs> They're directly identified. The sons of Jacob are reclining with Abraham and Isaac in the right. kingdom of heaven, and we could note as well, the apostles certainly weren't not saved, right. exception of Judas, but the point being made is that. Kind of trippy, though, because that means that John would be watching his future self in heaven, which yeah, is kind of uh, possible, yeah. But. Yeah, could he like make eye contact with them and they'd yeah. create a heaven paradox or something? I don't know. <laughs> no, the, the thing, though, is we aren't told in the text, so right. we'll leave it open. But there's been other theories. Again, the, these have been suggested to just be a different type of angel, these mm -hmm. heavenly creatures. They've yeah. been suggested to be just people throughout history that God has used that aren't named which is also part of the problem. We aren't told their names. Right. And there's other people who suggest, oh, well, 12's the number of government and the, so, the heads of the covenants and so forth that God's used through these people. All have merit, but when it comes down to it, we want to teach what's told, not what we're not. So I'll leave that up to you, Isaiah. If you're comfortable with that, you can meet them and start pointing out names, and they'll correct you or affirm you. But either way, uh, we'll... I'll both have a laugh about that later. Let us know if that helps. Um, here's a question from our Facebook page from Monica, who wants to know, is the battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the Battle of Armageddon, separate battles, do they both take place after the rapture? Well, Armageddon for sure. There's two battles in the Valley of Megiddo that people usually have reference to. The other one's in Revelation 20, but I think you're referring to Revelation 19. Uh, that one, for sure, is taking place after the rapture, and the final, final battle will take place after the rapture as well. The reason why people associate Ezekiel 38 and 39 with Revelation 20 is because it makes the reference. Gog and Magog gathered together against the uh, fountains of the Lord. Uh, by the way, the elder got the uh, quote from... <laughs> Uh, Abe Lincoln's very popular <laughs> children's author. Anyway, um, just had to throw that out there. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, though, it's an open guess for a lot of people as to before or after the rapture, because we can't stress this enough, there is no prophetic sign that has to take place before the rapture now that Israel's become a nation again. Mm -hmm. And even then, that could happen very quickly in the Antichrist system. But if, on the other hand, we know the stage is set, the players are ready, we're just waiting for the curtain call, mm -hmm. that is what will set off the tribulation when the Antichrist will establish his covenant with many. And we would conclude, among other passages, but one in particular, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist can't reveal himself till the one who restraints is taken away. We take that to be the Holy Spirit's work through the Church, not just that passage, but I'm being brief for time. Mm -hmm. When people say it'll happen at the halfway point of the Tribulation, they do so because Ezekiel 38 and 39 notes the invasion will take place in a city 
that is without walls, a right. total state of comfortability. They don't see that happening anytime soon in Israel before the tribulation, but they do see the Antichrist for the first three and a half years promising a peace to Israel and thus giving them reason to not have their guard up the way that it is now. Hmm. Uh, that's one fitting of the pieces, but note it's not necessarily you know, copy and paste into the text. It doesn't mention the Iron Dome or anything like that. Right. <laughs> if on the other hand, we're going to take another stat and say, well, what if there is no Gog and Magog till after the Tribulation, the Millennial Kingdom? Well, they'd note the reference, and I give them credit, but note as well, there are details given in Revelation 9, uh, 20 and Revelation, or in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that uh, don't exactly mix, because the result of the Gog and Magog invasion is that Israel will know that the Lord is God. If you put that into the millennium, they've known for a thousand and seven years minimum, so take that with a grain of uh, salt. But that's, again, the issues we have here. We want to reconcile more information, not less. The most supported views are either before the tribulation at an undisclosed time, at the beginning of the tribulation with very bizarre circumstances surrounding it or at the halfway point of the tribulation which we here think has the most merit um anything more to add no it's good all right uh, let us know if that helps you monica thank you for the question and sorry for that quick segue but we have to give uh, citation to jokes where we can <laughs> Keep it lighthearted, you know? All right, um, here's a question we received from Karen, who wants to know about the Kinsman Redeemer, where that's found and demonstrated and defined in Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know the specific scriptural references, but it is in the... Leviticus 25, 25, and uh, Ruth 3 through 4. That's right. So in the book of Leviticus, you have something laid out where the land could be redeemed by a kinsman. So we got to define some terms real quick. When Israel came into the land, the land itself became very, very important and was doled out by family. So for instance, each family, each patriarch would have received some sort of a section of land that they would be in charge of. So you had the main patriarchs, right? So each tribe received a portion of land that would be kind of like a state, right? Like a state within Israel. And then within that state, each individual patriarch, each family would then inherit some amount of land that they would be able to do kind of whatever they wanted with. And that land was theirs forever. As a matter of fact, every 70 years, that land would always revert back to that family. Uh, so if you got into a bad financial situation, you had to sell your land. Uh, I'm sorry, what? 50 years. Yeah, 50 years, sorry. Yeah, uh, seven sevens. <laughs> so the, uh, the and then the year. double year, yeah. That's right. Uh, so the, the year of Jubilee is when that would happen, which is, would be the 50th year on the Israeli calendar. So at that point, all land would revert back to the original family ownership. So again, if you got into a bad situation, you had to sell some land, or if there was someone who was just very, very capitalistically driven and they had a lot of resources, they could buy other people's lands, but they're actually renting it. You're renting it until the year of Jubilee. Now, once the year came and the land reverted back to the family, you could always just buy it again, which usually would happen, or it would just go back to the family and you'd have to clear out. Very, very important. Now, the very functional part of it comes about in the book of Ruth. So in the book of Ruth, you have Naomi, who is actually a member of Israel. Ruth, you have to remember, was not, right? Ruth was a Moabite. 
And what Someone had happened? Cursed from Israel, by the way. <laughs> That's right. And so Naomi's family had to actually leave Israel. Well, they didn't have to, but they they left they Israel for a time. Famine. They chose to because of the famine, and they they ended up leaving for a time. She loses both of her sons, and she comes back. So it's insinuated heavily in the text that she had to sell away her land. Now she had a kinsman, because remember the land was tied to the family in Boaz, and what. Ruth was able to do is she was able to convince Boaz to be able to buy back the land. Now, the reason why, again, you had to have a near of kin do that for you to redeem, which means to buy back, right? The reason why you needed a kinsman to do that is because, again, the land was tied to the family. It couldn't just be a random stranger to do it. You had to have someone who was near of kin to do that for you. Now, this becomes really amazing. So back in the day when uh, the Jews were reading that, they're like, oh, this is really cool. You know, and when I'm explaining to you, a lot of your eyes are glazing over and you're like, why do I care about land ownership in ancient Israel? Well, in the New Testament, the New Testament authors realized that this had massive prophetic significance. And Matthew I am spacing on the chapter right now. Matthew, In Matthew, Jesus tells a parable of a man who buys a field for the treasure that is placed within it. And it seems to be, again, Matthew, the most Jewish gospel in the New Testament. Matthew is relating this kinsman-redeemer ideal to Jesus, that Jesus wanted to, quote-unquote, buy back the world from what had happened to it. So remember... Originally, the world was given to mankind. We had it, and we had ownership of it from God Almighty. But we sold it, in a way, to Satan, so that Satan became the god of this earth. That's how he described in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as well as in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, Satan claims ownership over the world. Well, how did he get that ownership? It was because man, who was the rightful owner of the world, sold it to him. So you need a kinsman redeemer. You need someone who is a man who is able to perfectly fulfill the law of God and therefore buy back the claim status of the world. None of us are going to do that. None of us have done that. And this is why in the gospel—I mean, I'm sorry, not the gospel—in the book of Revelation of John, John sees this really heavenly and cosmic story in which he sees a parchment that is sealed, and nobody on earth is worthy to loosen the seals. This is the idea of buying back. And a lot of people pointed out that title deeds back in the day, when it was written on the front and the back, it was because your title was in hawk, right? You had to sell it. You had to mortgage it for some cash. And so he was crying because no man, right? No kin of man could purchase back the world and loosen the seals. And then Jesus steps up in this really dramatic sequence in the book of Revelation, and he's able to loosen the seals. Now, we know for a fact he hasn't done that yet because if he did, we would see some pretty crazy stuff, right? So when you look in the Revelation, book of Revelation and you see what's going to happen as Jesus is buying back the land, if you want to put it that way, that is where you see all of the tribulation portion of the Great Tribulation, right? All of the terror of God and the wrath of God is poured out as Jesus begins to repurchase or redeem the earth. So there are people who are redeemed from the earth, this would be his church, but the earth itself is still under the rulership of Satan. Now, there are some Christians who would say, no, 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 Jesus already bought back the earth, in which case I would say, I don't know what 
earth you're looking at. <laughs> it doesn't really seem like Jesus has bought back the earth. Uh, it seems like the world is pretty messed up still, but there is going to be a time where Jesus is going to buy back the earth. Why does he have the right to do that? Not only because he is fully God and therefore perfectly living up to the standards of God, but also because he became a fellow human being. He became a kinsman redeemer. If Jesus would have never done that, then again, mankind would be annihilated, and at the very least, we would definitely never be able to become the rulers of the earth anymore. God has always desired to rule with man, and that is why he again became a man, and therefore we will rule with him in heavenly places on the earth. Yeah, so, and noting the theme, the reason why Ruth was seeking out Boaz and why the whole drama of Ruth chapter 4 had to uh, basically have this guy give up his seat on the city council was because someone else was related to Ruth's former husband, her and uh, Orpah, I think her name was, both married men from Bethlehem who were from Judah and Benjamin respectively, and they died. They died during the famine. So when they returned to the land with nothing left to show for it, that was essentially the relationship, seeking out that in-law. The act of the kinsman redeemers, again, as you stated, Peter, more associated with property, but it has prophetic implications in Jesus's legal relationship with us. And again, Leviticus 25, 25 through onwards, details the year of Jubilee. You can read the whole chapter in detail. But that's the point of emphasis. And when you're, you know, reading through those passages in the Bible where you're going, I don't care who Salmon is and what he was the son of. No, that's going to be important because it's quoted again in Matthew to verify Jesus's rightful claim as Messiah, as the son of David. I'm sure you're familiar with 2 Samuel 11. If you're a Jew, you should be. That's the point that's being made. Or is it 12? Uh, 7, excuse me. We Satan, all of these numbers, but we got to keep them straight. <laughs> um, we got about a minute and a half before the music starts. I think it's time for a fair question, but we want to, of course, do it justice. So why don't we limit it to a contradiction, and we'll call it a day. <laughs> uh, this is, again, from the atheist websites that, uh, I guess, bother to address these things. And today's contradiction will be, could anyone cast out demons or only followers of Jesus? According to Mark 16 and verse 17 you can look up, only Jesus' followers could do so. Whereas in Matthew 7 and verses 21 through 23, people who weren't following Jesus could cast out demons. Well, I can say right off the bat, Matthew 7, 21 through 23 doesn't say anything of the sort. They were people who claimed to follow Jesus but never knew him, but that's inside. Let's go to Mark, and then I'll give some of their other examples. Yeah, Mark 16, verse 17, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So again, it's not making a statement that nobody can do it, it's just saying that the only one who can actually do it, right, people can't do it at all, right, the only one to actually do it is Jesus. And in Jesus' name this is done, where if we look at one of their other examples, again in Mark 9.38, Jesus uh, is told by John, someone who does not follow us is casting out demons in your name. What's a contradiction? It's A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and cancel each other out. That is not represented in these passages, and if you call their bluff, make them look up the passages and are willing to reconcile, that's not going to be a problem. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. This has been a reason for hope.
You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.